If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back. Um, We're really glad to be back this week. We have a really fascinating subject that, like we've said before with a lot of the things that we talk about, we're really only going to be touching the tip of the iceberg of a very in-depth subject, and that is cults, specifically cults uh, native to Southern California and Los Angeles. Um, you can go down a complete rabbit hole. I mean, I did this week doing the research for it. I'm sure you did too. Last night I was literally saying out loud, stay on task. Don't go to this page. Know, right? <laughs> because you can just keep doing you, Right. And then there's so much to cover, um, especially within just the, that genre. And well, know. and we, I think you had specifically gotten a request from somebody to look at the profile of people who join cults right. and you could look at the profile of cult leaders and obviously just go global with the history of it. Um, but I, have you always had an interest in this topic? Cause I really, cults don't really speak to me that much. You know, I, I'm completely knocked off by that question. Yeah. I was not expecting <laughs> I wasn't. But yeah, I've been fascinated by it because, um, you know, I think that there's an innate human drive to connect. And developmentally, if you don't have a particularly strong or positive template for that in your family dynamic, you may seek it out elsewhere. Sure. So I'm going to leave that to you to fill in more information. Right, right. Um, Yeah, I I think I'm more along those lines now, and this research has piqued my interest. I've just always had it in this box of like, okay, that's those people doing their thing, something I would never in a million years be involved in and wasn't necessarily super interesting, I guess, in the kind of fold of, like, all the other true crime stuff right. for me. Um, but it's just, like, human behavior. Yeah, right. fascinating. Let's sure. be very clear, too, that not all cults are necessarily ever going to have any intera- any intersection with law. Right, right. right. Or crime. crime. That, we're not making that statement at all. But what we are going to be talking about today is I've picked out three particular uh, examples that are specific to Southern California, two in Los Angeles and one in San Diego, because it was such a big deal for the time. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something, you know, here, I think Southern California, and the research that I did on this, one of the things I find really fascinating is that there are several theories about why so many cults 
have either started in Southern California or started in the West. Yes. And flourished here and either continued, moved on to other places and died out. But there was a particular time in history Mm -hmm. when this was the great frontier. Right. There was no one looking over your shoulder. And this was something that I found really interesting is that many of the spiritualist cults and religious and healing-oriented cults arose out of a lack of medical doctors. There exactly. were no medical doctors out here right. in the 17 and 1800s. There just wasn't anybody. Well, and there's this sort of uh, mystical piece of, you know, California nature and right. um, the different, you know, just from here we have pretty good elevation close by, 10,000 foot mountains down to beaches. Um, so there's mystery. There's mystery and there's something very spiritual about all those different elements that people, yeah, for for decades have found um, interesting or healing. Or they're drawn to them for or drawn, reason. Right. I, one of the things that was pointed out in the research that I thought was really interesting that I wasn't expecting was that dearth of trained medical professionals in the, especially in the mid 1800s, I'm sorry, 1900s, let's Mm -hmm. not get too far off in our history. (laughs) What there was out here was a lot of Chinese immigrants that had come for work and been, by the way, been horribly abused uh, in as migrant workers. But what they brought with them was traditional medicine, which was very, um, potent and well-researched in its own right, but it was very different from Western medicine, and it seemed very mysterious sure. to you know, the whites that lived here, who then also, they were getting medical treatment from these people that they could barely communicate with, right. and they didn't have their own Western doctors, so this led to this, this growth of sort of experimenting with spirituality, which also, there's an intersection there. You know, there's nothing like in the rest of the world compared to what happened in the last couple of hundred years here in America with the development of spiritualism that started really after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. You see a big explosion of these kind of movements after wartime because so many people die. Right. Maybe not so much now in the modern world, but after the Civil War, there was just this explosion that started with the Fox sisters in Tennessee. People are just trying to make sense and find meaning and and purpose and... Life Exactly. And unfortunately, a lot of them got taken advantage of by um, self-professed mediums and clairvoyance. But wow. here I am getting pulled off in a, another uh-huh. Come on back. Hole. Come back, Alice. <laughs> okay. So when we talk about um, cults, you know, the, the word itself now really holds, it, it really has a, pe- a pejorative uh, tone to it or a pejorative context to it when at the beginning it really didn't. What it was is a derivation or a, a descendant of the French word culta, which was also related to the word culture, meant to cultivate and to also inhabit or to have been of worship. So there's a very interesting, I mean, who even thought that our culture, the word culture itself comes from right. worship. Right. So what happened was is that it came into use in, I think, medical literature in the 1930s for what we now would be calling faith healing. Okay. So that movement towards the faith healing, the laying on of hands, and whatever religious denomination or expression it was, 
was seen as a cult, which we got to really make sure that we understand that the idea of a cult, even that time, was separate from a sect. And a sect is when there's a splintering or an offshoot of an established religion or denomination. Gotcha. I think this is so important because as I'm doing my research this week, I'm thinking... Who am I to say that this is a cult? And when does it get named and actually identified and labeled right. as a cult? And this and, and is so only, interesting. And it's only been in the last 30 years that really, you know, our, the people that we're standing on the shoulders of really sat down and, and kind of laid out the parameters of, okay, of, okay this is what constitutes a cult. A right. cult is in, and we'll go into that. In the sort of negative connotation that we've come to know it, when it's right. causing harm or... Right. Abnormal human behavior, exactly. Like that. Okay, and that's one of the things that they also point out is that they they use this this idea of um, in description of a cult that it is a socially deviant group. But that doesn't mean I'm not talking about like deviant sex. Right. I'm not talking deviant means different from what is considered to be the norm. So right. It, right. you know you're cult believes that wearing a Dixie cup on your head and walking down the middle of Hollywood Boulevard is going to give you enlightenment, Right. then that's obviously deviant. I think I saw that on my way here tonight. Probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> it's still Mercury retrograde. So oh, God. God that, that explains the traffic. Everything, right? And it's windy, which is yeah, really it unusual. always brings out the crazy in Los Angeles. <sighs> so... Um, what else is I going to tell about? So we talked about that, the derogatory connotations. Um... The movements here in California uh, really set off a sociologist, a really famous guy, Roy Wallace, in the late 70s through the late 80s. And he really talked about cults being characterized by what he called epistemological individualism. So at that time... Before it, it, it turned into what we're going to be looking at, he, this is a quote in, in one of his works that I read, the cult has no clear locus of final authority beyond the individual member. Uh, cults are oriented towards the problems of the individuals, loosely structured, tolerant, and non-exclusive. They make few demands on the members without possessing a clear distinction between members and non-members. Well, that has hmm. completely morphed. Very just, much so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically complete opposite. Because right. how would you define, from what you've been reading, how do you define a cult? What are the parameters? Oh, definition? I don't know. I, I think that's still tough. I, mean, I, I just think it's still tough to define. I think, um, you know... It, taking a lot of how he described it, it's almost opposite in many ways in, yeah, yeah manipulating uh, followers and... A charismatic leader. Sure. That's, I mean, there's not going to be, there's not going to be one that you can really, think of that... Exactly. Yeah. There, there's some in Asia that we won't get into, but there are, okay. there are enormous organizations right. that don't have one single charismatic leader, but that's really how we One have of the come to understand them here in the West. And it, again, we're not focusing on the leaders so much, but my big question through all of this is, I wonder how many of these leaders purposely set out to swindle people or get them to do what they want or just have them in their control, and how many of them did it start off good-natured and then 
the power and control and ego got the best of them and it ended up that way. That's exactly where I'm going with my yes. examples. All right. That's exactly where I'm going. Excellent. Um, because, you know, as this uh, discussion of this area continued to develop, and especially in the mental health community um, in the 70s, especially with the development of what, I mean, this was up north, but Jim Jones, right. who People's Temple, horrible, horrible uh, mass suicide and and destruction in um, Guyana, mm-hmm. uh, that started in Northern California. But that's like a sort of the, the typical exemplar of what we would we would consider to be a destructive cult with a charismatic leader who slowly through coercive technique narrows the life expression and life experience of all the followers and everything is, you know, there are no more and more decisive process and individualism is removed and then the physically, geographically cut off. Exactly. You cut off Moving to South America. Yeah. Yeah. This move on mass because, and which is interesting because in, in the cases that I was looking at, you always, what we're going to be seeing, and I know you'll cover this, is like in those charismatic leaders, there's always paranoia and there's <laughs> always narcissism. <laughs> yes. It's like they, they well, feed on each sure, other. You know, sure. Power, ultimate power corrupts and then right. it turns into those two, two um, sort of expressions. So in 1983, um, there was a really um, well-known and well-published psychologist, a Margaret Singer. Mm-hmm. Um, she really hit an apex of her career in this this particular area. Unfortunately, what happens in the latter years of her career, there was a lot of conflict over some of her publishings. But I still like I, in reading her work, I really have a great deal of respect for her. Um, and she was one of the ones that headed the APA task force on deceptive and indirect techniques of persuasion and control or DIMPAC. That's a pretty good acronym. Yes. Um, and this is the conclusion that she came to because, you know, she was focusing on coercive control, coercion on what we would call brainwashing. Right. And there was using that term brainwashing was really highly contentious at the time with, um, a lot of other APA members, but, Um, Here's a quote of hers that I really like. Cults and large group awareness trainings have generated considerable controversy because of their widespread use of deceptive and indirect techniques of persuasion and control. These techniques can compromise individual freedom, and their use has resulted in serious harm to thousands of individuals and families. This report reviews the literature on the subject, proposes a new way of conceptualizing influence techniques, proposes a new way of conceptualizing influence techniques, explores the ethical ramifications of deceptive and indirect techniques of persuasion and control, and makes recommendations addressing the problems described in the report. So once again, harkening back to what we're talking about, where it's a charismatic leader who slowly, you know, gains more and more control. And it reminds me of this, you know, old folksy Southern saying of, how do you boil a frog? Right. You put the pot, you put the frog in a pot of water and you slowly turn up the heat. Sure. Sure. He thinks first it's warm, comfy, you know, feels good. And and then it's frog soup. Before he knows. (laughs) So did her work in this come out of followers from cults now becoming 
patients in therapy? No, and- her, her research started after the Korean War. She was the one who spearheaded um, uh, deprogramming and debriefing uh, and interviewing okay. prisoners of war from gotcha. the Korean War, which, you know, the... Lots of similar techniques used. Exactly. A lot right. of similar, just like isolation and, I mean, a lot more initially um, physical right. abuse right. than, than a, you know, a sort of a, a Western cult would have at first. Sure. But sh- that's what she based her research on. And then there was controversy later on because people were questioning how she gathered her data. But mm-hmm. um, so it's... Well, it's, at least it sparks a conversation absolutely. and thought of the influence of people over other human beings. So So then there's discussion about putting cults into different categories. And Mm -hmm. so there are, and I know you came up with, you probably went a different direction with this, but the big, the, the big block would be doomsday cults. Right. Um, Doomsday cults, which there is where we're talking about. There's an overlap, an intersection with a lot of religious groups. Sure. You know, I mean, we can certainly say that in, in today's world, we've got militaristic doomsday cults that right. also have an overlap right. of right. religious zealotry. But doomsday cults have been around for a very, very long time. I mean, they've been around basically it's in, in the history of Christianity. They've been around because there's this thing every, pretty much every time the hundred year mark rolls around. Somebody sure. is saying what the world's going sure. oh, by the way, did you know the rapture's happening on the 23rd? I no. just saw that. Just popped up on my news feed. Oh, good. I'm not sure which guys. <laughs> I'm glad it's popping up on news feeds. It's a good way to let us know. Exactly. I'm, glad, right. I'm thinking that I might, you know, I have not taken my on closet. Monday. My stuff. I was going to take it to Salvation Army, but I may just put all my clothes along the sidewalk outside. On the 23rd on in the morning. House. Everybody got raptured, but me. Please take a picture of that. I will. I'll post it. But, post it. But doomsday cults, you know, whether they find it in a um, some calculation they've done, some or, kind of calculation, or a message from an entity, right, whether it's right, a spiritual right. entity or what they consider to be an alien entity, mm-hmm. or you know, it could it could come from many sources. But that is the focus of it: is that these are the end times, and. Preparing for that. Prepare for the end times. I mean, as if, what are you going to do? What does that mean? Right. I guess for some it means something different. Like, in one of the examples we have, it's like they're going to go on to a new plane of existence. Right. Um, You know, in the the example of uh, People's Temple, Jim Jones, Mm -hmm. his paranoia was to the extent he knew the U.S. government was coming because he had killed two reporters. Right. He was in trouble. So I'm going to take everybody down with right. me, which right. is pretty ap- apocalyptic in a yes, it is immediate definitely. Sense. Have you ever listened to those death tapes? Oh my gosh! His speeches right they're, before they're about to drink they're it. They're just awful. They're just awful. And it was um, flavor aid, not Kool Aid. It was not Kool Aid. It was flavor aid. <laughs> Great. Um, one of the ones that I found interesting, as far as a consideration of a political cult, which um, you know, there's a following of it today. That I'm sure they would protest, but Ayn Rand. And, oh my gosh, um, I haven't thought about that in a while. Political uh, um, objectivist right. movement is very much who's a charismatic leader and very, you know, I'm, there was not a lot of indication that she had people cut off, ever cut off from their family members because mm-hmm. it was all about individual choice, but, you know, individual choice to the point of, you know. Well, 
when you brainwash someone or manipulate them so much that they are then making the choice that you want them to make. I mean, yeah, you could say any of it. Who's making the choice? Yeah, yeah. So that's an example of um, a political one: the Lyndon LaRouche movement, um, the National Federal uh, Labor Federation, uh, Gino Parente. Those have been called cults. but once again, it depends on who is using the definition and in what way right. they're using it. Right. Um, we have racist cults. I mean, that mm-hmm. we have our country has a history of racism, and you know, definitely those go without uh, without even having to say the name. Right. Um, and then there are you know terrorist cults. I mean, those we don't really necessarily see those in Southern California, but worldwide we've seen ter- terrorist cults, and those would be. I mean, Peter Olson, who's a really revered psychiatrist who writes on this subject a lot, would say that to a certain extent, Osama bin Laden would have been an example, an example of, of a, you know, charismatic leader right. that basically, you know, created a, a huge movement based sure. on religious tenets that got narrower and narrower and away from um, standard con- considerations of Islam. Right. Uh, then we talk about we talk about Jim Jones, David Koresh. Um, and then who I'm going to talk a little bit about in a bit of Marshall Applewhite, although I wouldn't call him a terrorist, but it was definitely had Mm -hmm. the one thing that all these people that you look at, they've all got narcissistic personality. Absolutely. Well, you have to. Um, so the interesting thing about these people who end up starting these movements, we look at. When we say narcissistic, there are things that come along with it in a cult, and it is—it's the idea that the goals that we are working towards are the most important things, and nothing else matters. So the the end will always justify the means, right? And then there's that leader is always someone who is self-appointed. And they're messianic. I mean, they're they're like they're, they they portray themselves as the one who has the answers, mm-hmm. as the Messiah, mm-hmm. and usually will then take on the mantle, whether it's you know sort of a, a Christian overlay or an Eastern philosophy overlay, or <clears throat> they'll take on that mantle as if they are now speaking for divinity, right? And you know, people who are looking for something like that are going to take it. Right? Yes. So um, let's start off in, what's the, the 1920s in L.A. That's a really interesting time. Like yes, it about. is. Interesting yeah. time for just crime and yeah. true crime. And yeah, and, and this was the Wild West. It was still the yeah. Wild West, even though entertainment was just beginning to blossom. Really, there was a bit of manufacturing, but, you know, you... you the Los Angeles of the 1920s would not look like today. Right. So, but you have lots of people flocking out here. Yeah. It's new. You have Hollywood starting up. People coming from vaudeville on the East Coast to want to be in silent films. Right. Opportunity yes. of all kinds. Opportunity of all kinds. So um, there was a woman, a Miss May Otis Blackburn, and she was born in Iowa in 1881. And she founded a religious movement that was called the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. Okay, so that's that, a mouthful. That is a mouthful. I, what, what kind of acronym? <laughs> I, I can make an acronym. Dorage. 
Okay. Dorage. I like that. It sounds fancy. (laughs) It sounds like a cheap cigarette for women. I could see May Otis smoking that. Yes, exactly. May Otis in her Dorage. She was probably smoking something. (laughs) Um, And here's the thing is it was a major, it was a, major religious movement out here in that she was able to really, she and her daughter, who were the self-appointed high priestesses, I mean, she was a queen, her daughter was the high priestess of of this movement, Um, they were able to coerce a lot of people uh, into believing and following them. Uh, May and her daughter Ruth started telling people that they were the two witnesses of the book of Revelation and they had followers from Portland, Los Angeles, and then later from around the country who moved out here mm-hmm. to follow them. So they were getting, they were printing tracts, they were getting interviews and papers, they were spreading the word, which think about how hard that was to do at that time. Oh I mean, my gosh. Not, no e-media, no nothing. Right. They, so there was some real power behind the message that they had because they were right. saying that they had answers. They were compl- They claimed that they were mediums and clairvoyants, and they were in touch with um, uh, the angel Gabriel and the angel Mike- Michael. Mm-hmm. And those two angels were, of course, dictating a book to them called The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel, which was later changed to The Great Sixth Seal. I don't know why they changed the name. From seven to six? I, don't I mean, know. so does it say what city they were? Yes, they were originally there. Her original house uh-huh. is two blocks from my office building. What? Not the, the house isn't there anymore. Right, but right. It's on Bunker Hill. Oh the, no! The side there's like a huge skyscraper on it now. But like there, I was when I was doing the research. Right. Like, oh my gosh! I walk by there all the day. Oh my gosh! So the original, there were pictures of it. There's pictures of it online. It's an old Victorian house, you know, which was cool. really a lot of those down there. Um, she came up with the idea, that, or she didn't come up with the idea. It was channeled to her from Angel mm. uh, Michael and Gabriel that um, after the impending apocalypse, so note that, that it's right. apocalyptic. Doomsday. Yeah. There would be 11 queens that would rule the world from mansions <laughs> on Olive Hill in uh, Hollywood. And she required her followers to give her money, property, and other objects of value to support her and her daughter. And you know, she was charismatic. People just gave money hand over fist. Right. Basically, were working full time jobs. She bought a huge parcel of property up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, built a temple, a very, uh, very expensive temple, mm-hmm. um, and bunk houses and a mansion. And apparently, had a gilded throne that weighed like a ton. I mean, it was wow. kind of crazy. And uh, just so much excess in a time that yeah. it was really rough on people. Exactly, exactly. There were two things that were interesting that happened. One was that there was a couple that moved to Los Angeles to follow her and her daughter, and they had a daughter that um, was the what was her name? Willa Rhodes. Willa Rhodes was a I think a sixteen year old young woman. Um, they were all indoctrinated into the movement, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, Willa uh, got a toothache. And back in those days, anything will kill you. Yeah. So Willa gets an infection, dies of a toothache. The parents are... Dies of a toothache. Dies of a toothache, <laughs> dies of the infection. An infection. She, they call uh, May and her daughter to her side, you know, help us, help us, help us. And she's, 
they immediately had this revelation that um, the daughter was going to come back after a thousand days. She was going to come back to life. So they put her body in a tub and they covered it with ice and spices and salt and sugar. Just making basically a... So two plus years, you got to wait around. They've got to keep their daughter for two years. And they promised these poor parents. They promised them that. More money. And they would take the body on rides in the car around the city of Los Angeles. Like that must have smelled. Oh my God. But eventually, I think um, what's indicated is the body uh, decomposed to the point where they buried it under the house, surrounded with the bodies of seven dogs that they had sacrificed. Apparently, they were doing a lot of animal sacrifice. Oh, my gosh. Including donkeys, for some reason. They were dancing in the woods naked up in the San Fernando Valley. and There's all kinds of stuff wrapped into this. Yeah, seriously. Cult. But... So far, no one, they haven't gone out of their way to to hurt anyone. Right. What they did do was they had gotten a lot of money from a guy, Clifford Dabney, who was a nephew of oil magnate Joseph B. Dabney, and um, basically took him for $50,000 at that time. So take $50,000, I mean, that would have been a couple of million at least by now. He actually figured out he was being conned or felt like he was being conned and took her to court. She lost court. She lost the court case. Hmm. Um, And then that instigated a huge uh, investigation where the body was found. They weren't found guilty of of killing her because they didn't kill her, but um, it it was a huge scandal. So on March 2nd, 1930, uh, Blackburn was convicted of eight counts of grand theft. So they allowed her to stay in L.A. County Jail until... um, her court case came up, but um, the court decided, hey, you know what? The disappearance of this young woman and then her death doesn't have anything to do with the fraud. And they kind of just said, we're not even going to deal with this weirdo stuff. We're just going to talk about the fact of what happened with right. this money. Um, so what they did was they um, found her guilty okay. of financial fraud. She was found innocent of the others. But she just sort of faded out. I mean, she stayed in Los Angeles. She wrote another book in 1936. Um, But suddenly, I think her followers were disenchanted. And so the cult itself sort of fell apart. And these were like hundreds of people, you know, dancing nude in the woods. Hook, line, and sinker were just in it, came from all over. It it seems like so many of these... Fast as they blow up, just crash and burn, and it's usually financial. Right. You know, they go bankrupt or, you know, in this case, get caught that they were actually defrauding individuals. Um, Or people just become disenchanted kind of in droves and then leave. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. Unless it's gotten to the point where it's so large that it's self-sustaining. True. And there are other people. I think one of the things that we saw, I mean, I'm not... That we don't, we're not using it as a definition in this one, in, uh, in our in our um, discussion tonight. But when you look at someone like David Koresh, mm-hmm. you know David Koresh had and and Jim Jones and People's Temple, he had indoctrinated indoctrinated other men. Right. Let's let also say this, like giving an example of two men, and had they were backed up by thugs basically. Right. Like they had second second hand guys that were like. 
where he gives them this feel of like you're special, you're going to be next in line. So they're the ones who are happy to be, you know, the heavies to right. keep everybody else in line. Right. So that can I think can sustain one of these movements for a longer time and ultimately probably be a big part of the downfall because ultimately how are you going to keep other powerful people in line? Sure. Yeah. Do you think Negan from The Walking Dead is a cult leader? I Do you think that's a cult? What are they called again? His group? Oh, I stopped watching it. You know, uh, I'm sorry. Negan ruined it for me. How? Gave, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's like the smar- same thing. It's I a know. smarmy character, and I got tired of it. I know. It's like, okay, I know. You know, all the good stuff is, anyway, that's a whole other <laughs> Sorry. One. That's my, that's my, um. Bringing some, uh, yeah. entertainment so, references in. What was the other one that I thought was really, um, interesting? So moving forward, we're going to go forward now basically 100 years, mm-hmm. um, or close to 100 years. Last week, no, two weeks ago, was yeah, the 20th weeks. anniversary of Heaven's Gate. And for those of you that are listening, I'm sure most of you probably have heard of this, but if you haven't, Heaven's Gate is a really fascinating and tragic story of a cult here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. It had actually moved to San Diego from other parts of the country because they had been wandering for a while. And this is a cult that we would say is hitting all these hallmarks um, of a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes more uh, uh, paranoid. Right. Um, and it is quasi-religious in sort of framed in science fiction. Right. So I actually came across a um, one type of cult that they actually named alien cults. And so I think this would kind of fit into it that does. as well. It, it, it's, it's alien, doomsday, mm-hmm. and, and destructive. Yeah. You know, I mean, like yeah. there, there are several religious movements that basically say, and have been saying for the past 200 years, we're living in the end times. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. they are doomsday-based belief systems, right. but they're not destructive. They're not actually advocating suicide or violence right. um, to those means. But um, Heaven's Gate, uh, it was March 26, 1997. 39 people were found uh, dead mm-hmm. in a California mansion. And I remember watching the news. Me too. And the initial report was that it was all teenage boys. They oh, all really? thought it was teenage boys because they were all wearing, like, tracksuits and matching sneakers, the Nikes, and they all had, like, super short, buzzed haircuts. Gotcha. And what was it was later found that that was sort of the general look Mm -hmm. and that the men were actually, the reason the men even looked younger and more androgynous is because many of them had self-castrated, which was a part of the movement. Okay. So Heaven's Gate... Is, uh, and Heaven's Gate was their name for their cult? Yes. Okay, or yes. their organization. And the website is still active. It has oh, not changed in 20 years, but it's still up. So um, Check it out. Check it out, folks. Lots of purple. Yeah, lots of purple. <laughs> so this is also something interesting, too, because we're going to talk about how two people come together and um, in the worst way possible. Yes. Because they were not good for each other. Um, Marshall Applewhite... Uh, Marshall Applewhite was a minister's son, and he had uh, had a lot of different um, uh, career attempts. He had worked as 
um, a teacher. He had been a singer. I think he'd been a music teacher as well. He'd owned a deli, and he'd been in the military for a short while. And he um, crossed paths with a nurse in Texas named Bonnie Nettles, and she felt that she was psychic and that when she conducted seances that her spirit familiar or her spirit guide was a spirit of a 19th century monk. I'm sorry, she was a nurse? She was a nurse. So they met in 1972. They immediately became very good friends. Um, And Apple White assumed and sort of asserted that the two of them knew each other from past life. So they had this connection. Uh, And then I believe Nettles' response to that was that extraterrestrials had told her that they were uh, actually lovers in a former life. Oh, okay. Which is interesting, and I won't go too far into it, but Mm -hmm. one of the things when you really get into Marshall Applewhite's background, Marshall Applewhite was uh, a closeted gay man. And really, coming from a very religious family, he could not deal with it. Sure. And um, he was not really able to consummate a relationship with Bonnie, Um, and eventually folded into his belief system that the only way for you to ascend as a spiritual slash alien being Mm -hmm. was to be completely celibate. Oh, my gosh. And then you have the self-castration stuff. Well, he was the one that did it. He first did it. He found a a doctor that would perform the surgery in Mexico, and then his followers, he encouraged his male followers to do it as well. There have been so many books written about this, and for those of you out there that want to go down this rabbit hole, I I encourage it because it is (laughs) really fascinating. Um, Once again, like May Otis and her daughter, here are two people that feel like they are the ones that have intrinsic, specific, and revelatory insight into the book of revelations. Right. And so what they start doing is they start interpreting it through this science fiction lens and this idea that biblical prophecies were sort of, uh, uh, metaphors for aliens visiting the world and that earth was always under, uh, sort of supervision, but we were kind of left here. We were seated by these alien worlds and we were left here to develop on our own and that the people, the ship was going to come back Right. And pick people up. Now, that wasn't the initial belief, and we don't really have time to go into the evolution of the beliefs. Right. Because they changed over time. Sure. As they, it seems like a lot of them do. Right. Because doesn't that go along with the idea of that sort of grandiosity and narcissism of, I'm just going to fold the world around what I yes. need it to be? Yes. Well, even with the doomsdays and, you know, they have their deadline of when the end of the world is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. And then there's an explanation for that. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Which reminds me, I remember right being right out of grad school and working mm-hmm. at the state prison and having working with a really delusional individual who thought everybody was the CIA and the FBI. And I was such a dumbass. I thought, you know what, I'll I'll, I'll show him my ID. I'll like, you know, like, look. That'll change his mind. Look, here's three IDs of me. I just want, like, this is who I am. There's no reason for you not to trust me. And immediately he said, yeah, that's what the CIA does for you. It's like, like, you got that overnight. Right. They probably shipped it out to you from Washington. And I was like, wow, that's a strong delusion. Yes. Um, 
just go with it. Yeah. Don't challenge it. So, but back to Marshall and um, and Bonnie, who changed their names to um, Bo and Peep and Doe and T. I mean, they just like these weird combinations of right. things that would um, serve them, I guess, in a weird little, almost childlike, endearing way. Their precise beliefs really shifted a lot. But sort of the the apex of what they finally landed on is that the biblical God is actually a very advanced alien and that the earth is really on, um, on schedule right now to be recycled. And that if you get the right guidance and if you live the right life and you make all these modifications to your lifestyle, you can ascend to this level that he called the evolutionary level above human. And, um, they basically sort of, immerse themselves in religious studies and, you know, this was how they thought, oh, okay, well, we're the ones who have figured this out. We have figured this out. <laughs> so, so even on their website, which is so, like, 1996. Yeah, it hasn't like, moved. It's, it's a time capsule. It says that um, they're waiting for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to their world yeah. in the literal heavens. This is such a cool website. It's actually it's a time capsule. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's it act for the time. That was probably a pretty good website. It, yeah, across the top it says "Red Alert." Red Alert has this flashing. It has like to let you know. Yeah, about to happen. It's kind of eerie to think. But here's the thing: they were not scamming their followers. They were not begging for money. They would ask for donations. They never demanded money. They picked up and went on a road trip all over the U.S. and just started attracting people. Right and left. So, really, believers without that. Yeah, content. they weren't scam artists. They were they were true believers. And even though their their belief system still um, was shifting, they went through phases where they had a lot of. One of the things that happened is Bonnie Bonnie died of cancer eventually, which really I think shrunk the group in, immediately because a lot of them woke up and went, "Wait, you have all this advanced knowledge and understanding. Like, how is it possible that somebody's dying of cancer?" Right, and that really um, and they also got kicked out of some communities because they were pretty odd and people started noticing. And he was um, Marshall. You can go on YouTube and Marshall Applewhite's videos mm-hmm. are still there. Right, somebody uploaded those. Um, Where did the mansion come from? I remember seeing that on the news as well. Just thinking, oh, oh, okay. They rented it. So somehow they, oh, I know where the money was coming from then. They had moved to San Diego. And get this, two of their followers were sort of on the cutting edge of IT. Oh, So they were, you know, they were developing websites for other people, which was very lucrative business at the time. Right. And was, you know, they also were really known at the Sizzler. Because they would go <laughs> serious. They I know. Would, I remember this. Remember they yeah, would go to a yeah. local sizzler, and the waitresses were like, "We." They were super polite and always uh-huh. really nice. They always ate like got the salad bar. Oh, you can eat chicken. shrimp. Well, I think they ate really clean. Oh, but okay. they. This is the thing that would piss the restaurant off. They used every lemon they had because part of Marshall Applewhite's belief was that. Iced tea with lots of lemon. Basically, what is that? A, an Arnold Palmer? Yes, which that, are fantastic. I'm on board with them. <laughs> but they would go like, "Oh my gosh, here come those folks!" Again. Get we the lemon like, wedges ready. Cut up the lemon wedges. <laughs> um, they had been living in campgrounds, but they finally were making enough money to live in that rental mansion. And um, finally, their plan came about that. 
they had to be ready. And the thing that the the event at that time that shifted perspective was the return of the Hale Bop comment, comment, right? Which I think that only comes like once every couple of hundred years, right? If, right. I, if I remember correctly, and their belief suddenly, like we we're talking about, that delusion folds into belief system. Sure. Or vice versa, right. is that oh, here comes the comet. The ship is hiding in the tail of the comet, and they're going to beam us up. They were completely fascinated by Star Trek, and they in- incorporated a lot of Star Trek terminology into their daily Lingo. talk with each wow. other. Like they called themselves, they had uh, patches on their track suits that said um, Earth Away Team. Because there was always the planetary away teams that were going out to explore. Here you go, planets. having to explain Star Trek to me again. Okay. Are you are you a little bit jealous of their tracksuits with the um, patches? Actually, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really not. Uh, but yeah, so unfortunately, um, and and sadly, part of the the way that they were supposed to jump on that ship was to commit suicide. So there was right. a mass suicide of 39 people. Um, and how how was it done? They okay. This is fascinating. All the bedrooms in the mansion were set up with bunk beds, mm-hmm. and they were to dress all the same. So they were all wearing, I believe, black tracksuits, matching Nikes. They all had the same size piece of purple. Like cloth. Cloth, which right. I think was shining like a nylon or a rayon something. And they laid it on themselves on an angle over their heads. Right. And they took an overdose of, uh, is it Vicodin? Was it a painkiller? No, it's phenobarbital. Oh, That's okay. right. I remember it was phenobarbital and they mixed it with applesauce, washed down with vodka. And by the way, you have to take a lot of phenobarbital. Wow. I mean, like it would have, it would have been a lot, a very high dose right. or, or a medium high dose with a lot of vodka. And so this was, I think probably, you know, with these ones that end in sort of mass suicide where it seemed like everyone did it voluntarily on their own. There wasn't some evidence of, oh, then we had to shoot some people in the back of the head? Right, like Jim Jones. Right, right, right. was coercive where they were oh, going around like, time. you know, you have to drink your Kool-Aid. You have to drink the flavor. Oh, with that many people. Right, and, they, and then they were just gunning. If they were still moving, the guys in charge were gunning them down. Right. These people went, right. oh, my God, you know what else? This is what, I mean, it's, I kind of want to laugh, but I don't want to, I feel sorry for them. Right. They all had a roll of quarters in their pocket. I know. There's something about that that's... What is that? Like, isn't... I mean, the the thing that challenges me in that is... It's so odd, but you're going to take U.S. currency with you on a On a spaceship, spaceship to call? Or what was... I mean... Vending machines? I don't know. I, we'll never know. I mean, it's... it's You know, I, but even... The, get this. There were two survivors that were designated to stay behind and okay. spread the word. Okay. And they said something like the quarters were, were for um, to be able to communicate. So I don't know if there was going to be a phone booth up there or what. But, okay. And so interestingly enough, in the interviews you read with the two survivors, um, they're very sad. You know, they feel like they're still 
part of something and they missed out on the big event and they know that they're going to be reunited. Right. But right. they missed the big event, which I just think is oh. sad and somewhat chilling. It is. Definitely. Hmm. Look at those, the, the crime scene photos are available online. It's yeah, just, it's not just, gruesome. It's just kind it's of not, odd. It's and kind of sad. Oh, and you know they're what? Covered. The Museum of Death on Hollywood Boulevard has um, the bunk beds set up. There's Can we go? We, we need to go. go. I'd like to see that. Me too. That's where I cross from the, um, oh, what is it? The, the campaign s- against the psychiatry. Yes, the Scientology it's the Scientologist one. movement against psychiatry. Right. That, folks, if you're ever in LA, please just go to that. And I think it's, it's free, right? It's you don't free. even have to pay oh, to get it's in. Free. It's free and hilarious, I might add. We need to do both in yeah, the same day. we should. We'll just make that. So, number one and number two, there we go. Um, so, I want to end and recommend um, on my examples before we move on to the next part of our mm-hmm. discussion on something that was really an astounding experience because you know I like you you're all, you and I back and forth are going what are you watching on Netflix yep. gotta watch this yep. and one of the things that came up recommended on my feed was a a, a documentary entitled Holy Hell uh, about a cult in Southern California and I was like it all takes place in the late 80s early 90s or the mid 80s the early 90s and I'm going, wow, I didn't even know what, what was that. Let me. And my jaw dropped open as I watched it because as I'm watching it, I realize that the leader, the charismatic mm-hmm. leader um, mm-hmm. named Michelle or Michael Rostand, mm-hmm. was a guy that approached me several times at the old athletic club gym on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. And. He approached me because he would see me like in the stretch room or something and I'd be meditating or, um, you know, I'd take a yoga class and I go meditate. And I remember him approaching me, um, and saying, I remember, I remember to this day what he said, there is only, there are thousands of meditations. There's only one true meditation. And I know that I can teach you if you want to know the true meditation, meditation, so cheesy when you it think about cheesy. it. I, I gotta say, like, and I, everybody, you gotta watch this documentary. Yeah, it's phenomenal and it's so well produced. I'm gonna do my best to get the um, the director producer on for an interview because I think he's done a phenomenal job. Yeah, and he's also lived through hell. I mean, he he really went through it. Um, but you know, I was, I always laugh at myself. I look back on my life and there, you know, as anybody does, and you think, sure. I'm a dumbass. Like, right. What, how stupid could I have been? Right. And I made a lot of mistakes and I did a lot of, experimented a lot when I was young. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, Shiloh, when this guy approached me, immediately, and it wasn't a red flag. Right. I thought, you're full of shit. Huh. So what, what did you actually say to him? I said, oh, I mean, I'm sure you really were polite. Mm-hmm. What, you know, because I'm always uh, well, sure. ridiculous. Uh, I was like, oh, well, what do you mean? He goes, I have meditation meetings at my home. Right. And, you know, a lot of people come. You should you should check them out. I'm like, oh. Was he, he, was he French? I, no, he was, uh, he's Latino. I think he was from Mexico. Michel, he was, a, he was oh. a, like a bodybuilder and a ballet dancer. He actually That's a right. Phenomenal, he was a dancer. Phenomenal physique. Right. But even, I mean, one of the things that, that bugged me, I think, 
may have something to do with now is that he had had a lot of plastic surgery mm. or he looked like his face had had a lot mm-hmm. of plastic surgery. I don't mean, I don't mean ghoulish or like freaky, but like something was that like sort yeah. of that uncanny valley thing. Yeah. Where, like, uh, but I just thought you're, you're full of crap. So anyway, wow. I didn't know. That, I mean, and so I was, I never really knew, I never, never really thought about him again. I mean, I'd see him at the gym. Right. And it turns out that he had begun an organization or a movement called Buddha Field. And that sort of opening scene of the documentary where it's just footage of the followers frolicking in this water. Yeah. Totally 80. Like, I could see you in striped little shorts and, yeah, like... exactly. Off in shorts. <laughs> right. You know, your hair. And nice I and mean, blonde. And... What was amazing about watching that was I recognized a lot of people that I knew peripherally. Oh, and they're interesting. all wonderful people. I sure. Can, I can tell you they were some of the nicest people I've ever met. Right. So I would just... And seeing this, you know, footage that's 35 years old and going, I knew him. I knew her. Oh, that's why they all lived in that house together. Oh because my this God. is what he did is they would, sh- you know, people had full-time jobs. Right. And his scam was that he would give them meditation lessons and he would give them readings and he would give them special coaching and they all ended up paying him. Mm-hmm. So they were paying him for the opportunity to wait on him. But there was an emphasis on like you know, you know, clean with your body. Everybody worked out. Everybody right. ate really healthy. Um, he was in phenomenal shape. And yeah. It was great yeah. too. So you look at this documentary and it's, I mean, it's intriguing because they're very attractive people. Like, you know, right. they're all, right. and they're all young, young and, and vital and the sure. way, and of course, you know, the guy who's the producer for this is a, wonderful storyteller and he was like uh, his name is Will Allen mm-hmm. and for 22 years he immersed himself in wow. that movement and he was the the video documentarian that just followed all of us so there's just you know miles and miles of footage that right. he used to tell this story and all of these people lived in shared communal homes they were all, you know, there was a real sense of kindness and support for each other mm-hmm. until things started, like, getting weird. And there was, like, there was sexual coercion that was foisted on men regardless of their sexuality. There okay. were, then there were, like, power plays where people were played against each other. And one of the things that was was kind of disturbing is that he would sometimes encourage people to have surgeries so that he could see what it looked like before he got something done. Oh, wow. That's what I understood from one of the interviews that I read. Right. Um, But I totally encourage people to watch this because it is another example of someone who is pure narcissist. Um, What's fascinating to me that I didn't really get is where he learned all this. Right. He learned how to manipulate people. This is somebody that... It, this, he's not doing this just out of figuring out step by step as he goes. I'm mm-hmm. convinced that mm-hmm. he really like figured it out. Very well it, planned. Yeah, and it started out as like this, just you know, loving community, and then it turns into real some real sadistic movement, right? And sadistic actions that uh, Michelle took against uh, the members. 
Um, and the thing was, what was it? I think it was in 2012 when it um, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they talk about in interviewing people who got out of the movement, and all of them are so well-spoken, you know, they're so my intelligent, age, intelligent, right. is that they put their lives on hold for two decades. They didn't do... They did not further their careers. I mean, one thing you'll find out is, like, these people are all brilliant and artistic and, like, really amazing people that were all searching for something. Right. And, you know, what they got was a real connection. You know, they got a real connection with each other. Right. And, but they were taken advantage of. Right. Like you said, that chunk of their life. Yeah. Uh, And, I mean, your 20s, 30s, 40s. Right. Sure. But so yes, I like who you chose to interview for the documentary because in, you know, my piece of who gets into a cult, they're such wonderful intellectual I mean just great people. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> this is what's funny. Do you remember that Seinfeld episode? Were you a Seinfeld fan? A bit. Okay. They had one of the most hysterical episodes that you find out that there's a carpet company in New York, which is actually based on a true story, that there was a, a, a carpet cleaning company mm-hmm. that was a cult. And <laughs> Larry David wrote an episode where uh, George finds out right. that from his boss, I think, that this that they try and recruit you when they come. <laughs> so he has them come to his apartment and they're not interested in him. <sighs> He's and so, super offended. He's super offended. So they're like they're cleaning the apartment and cleaning the carpets, and George is going, "Wow, I just I feel so lost. I just really feel like I wish I wish I had some meaning in my life." And the guy's like, "Yeah, good luck with that." Oh man! <laughs> but I do. I, I think that's interesting that you know you. You know these people are not stupid. It's like it's the same there you idea go. Yep. of. You know, people often want to say that um, women who are victims of domestic abuse, well, there's something that's characterologically common about them, and it's not. It's not the commonality in them. It's the commonality in the perpetrator that knows how to utilize aspects of coercive control in order to manipulate people. So here in domestic violence, we're talking about one-on-one, and then in a cult setting, how it's one who perpetrates on a number of people. Right. And he's still around. Like, remember, at the end of it, there's a confrontation in Hawaii. There's still about 85 people... um, Following. Following him. Well, and we think of some of the more high-profile, tragic type of cults, like, obviously, here in California, Charles Manson. Right. And not every cult follower is some drugged-out teenage runaway girl. And so researching who these people are, I think, really destroyed that for me. Again, I didn't give it much thought, Mm -hmm. but that is definitely an outlier. Well, there were so many drugs being done in the Manson cult, too. I mean, like... Right, right. And, well, just the times. I mean, that piece of California history um, also lends to the types of cults, you know, love cults and um, the the underlying drug use definitely fueled a lot of that, and people are easy to manipulate when 
they're yeah, under the influence. And when they're, and when they're reliant. Especially his, you know, his, his three female followers. Right. You know, they were lost women searching for something. And, right, right. Um, he was able to utilize the time. And the, I, I really think, I mean, there was so much acid that was done. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was so much acid done. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't help but think that that had a lot to do with Sure, it. sure. With him? Or with the followers. With the followers. Oh, I yeah. wonder very much if he actually partook of all the drugs that he was um, mm. as much as right. he was giving to oh, the followers. I doubt it. I highly, yeah. highly doubt it. But but there's been so much written about him. And one of the things that I think is difficult in a when you're talking about Manson, and I just, I chose, I mean, there's been so much that's been said on Manson. I, really, I don't really right. feel like there's anything I can add to it. No. These are examples of one that's incredibly current and that I had like an an interaction with, but the idea that there's, there's a wonderful scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where you hear Galadriel talk about how an event with enough time Mm -hmm. becomes a legend Mm -hmm. and then with enough time, it becomes a myth. Sure. So you get so far removed from what actually happened. And I I remember when I was young enough to watch the TV movies. Was it this Helter Skelter? Remember? Right, okay, right. So Helter Skelter comes out. And they portrayed Manson as having supernatural powers, that he could stop the watch. Oh, just, really? Oh, my goodness. The trial. This is such crazy. <laughs> it's like, no, right. why, are we going, why are we expanding yeah. beyond the fact that it's just this guy who's incredibly coercive and, sure. and a terrible human being? Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right, so should we jump into some of the people that yeah. join cults? Um, so, uh, overwhelmingly... The research really strongly suggests that it's less about someone's personality type and more about their circumstances in life uh, at that moment. Right, of course. That so, makes so much sense. it's, you know, it, it, and there's not people out there that are like, hey, I want to go join a cult because it's not even evident, obviously, on the surface of that's what it is. Um, but cult members, and that's just what I'm going to call them, um, typically psychologically healthy. Um, we're not talking about, you know, high numbers of significant um, pathology going like on. One. We're not like we're not seeing right. that they all have bipolar disorder. No, or, no, no, no. Or you know, delusional to begin with, right. or anything like that. Well, then what? Because what could you get out of somebody that's not going to be well, consistent? Well, sure. Right? You can't get your needs met. <laughs> Absolutely, that would be a terrible person to have as your follower. Um, but they tend to be particularly idealistic. So, you know, they. Oh, okay. They're psychologically healthy, but a little bit more idealistic than the average person. Um, and we're talking wide variety of people, wide variety of backgrounds, education. Again, it's just more kind of where are they at in life? And they're probably going through some sort of normal um, life transition or a little like a blip or stage. roadblock yeah. or... Um, Some trying time, possibly, that, you know, lots of people. But it it could be a period of sort of upheaval or transition that make them really just more open to receiving whatever message the cult is putting out there. So some of those um, can be like post-breakup is a really common one. So loss of a relationship, um, 
you know, this sort of feeling these negative feelings from the relationship, but then also, okay, I need a new start, a new chapter in my life. That's done. Um, and then this kind of timing happens to where they're, they're getting that need met of starting something new and maybe something kind of exciting and making these new connections with people to fill the, the relationship loss. Um, also not so much a, uh, um, a transitional period in someone's life, but they find that there are people who tend to be perfectionists sometimes are drawn because of the structure. Okay. So containment. Yeah. Um, structure to be followed exactly. But there's also this idea of, um, we as a group, because of what we're following and what we're involved in, we're a little bit better than outsiders. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of feeds into a perfectionism piece of personality for some people. Um, but it's also that sometimes that desire to be enlightened and that might mean following a very regimented routine. Um, or even like you were talking about with, what is it? The Buddha field. Yeah. Um, you know, just diet and or exercise and just a whole lifestyle change very much. So, um, and then you kind of touched on it a second ago, but possibly people who are in this sort of existential crisis of who am I, what meaning and purpose can I find in life? Um, and that would obviously be really um, prime territory for somebody to prey upon someone that's in that period of life. And, I mean, a lot of people go through that yeah, at you know some what? point or another. I can't help but, like, I did not know about the perfection I had not heard that mm-hmm. in any other reading. And that is fascinating to me because think of everything that comes along with someone who has that, a tendency towards perfectionism. That that comes out of a place of anxiety mm-hmm. and a place of not feeling that you're enough. Right. So you have to overcompensate. Right. So if you have to overcompensate, then you fall prey to a charismatic leader who becomes the only one that can actually adequately reflect back to your internal object mm-hmm. that you're enough. And then that makes you completely vulnerable for manipulation. Right. And a lot of the perfectionists grew up in some other sort of organized religion, traditional organized religion, religious families, and just feeling like there's something better out there, you know, constantly striving for something else. Better. Or, I mean, if it was really strict and sort of traditional that you are, you you are born imperfect and sinful and you have to work towards enlightenment right. and fulfillment and it's very regimented. And here's somebody that's telling you, Oh, you're almost there. Right. Like this is just keep working. It. Yeah. This just is keep, how we do it. Yeah. And yeah. it's okay for you to have sex. Right. With me. Right. <laughs> with the leader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you and everyone else. Yeah. Um, it, I think it was kind of obvious to me when it, the research showed that people with low self-esteem really can be taken with this because one of the tactics, which I'll, I'll get into in a second, when they're recruiting followers is this concept of what they call love bombing. Right. right. So, Which is another aspect of um, the cycle of violence. Right? Oh, and completely. Just, cycle yeah. of violence yeah. and domestic violence. Yeah. Right. So it's over you know, complimentary right. and just you're so beautiful and you're so wonderful and if someone with low self-esteem has not been told that ever or in a very long time or it's been challenged for much of their life, 
um, this promise of being loved by many people and then to be loved by a leader yeah. um, or even some other higher power is very enchanting. So, um, And then it, the research does show that more women join cults than men. Okay. However, I think research shows that more women attend religious services just across the board anyway, so it's not hugely surprising. Um, but there's some researchers and psychologists that say, you know, a lot of women traditionally are sort of taught to seek attention from men and to be cared for and to, um, you know, wait to be provided for and taken care of. Exactly. And That's what you're socialized to do after right. 4,000 years of, you know... Patriarchy. Right. Where men are taught to go out and make your own goals and go and, you know, make your own path. Um, So, I mean, I think there's some sense to that, to why more women would be drawn to it than men. Um, But overall, more women attend religious functions and ceremonies in general. Um, Individuals who are recruited for cults are often young adults um, and usually middle to upper class. So, just kind of breaking down a little bit of demographics. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm sure it it depends on the region of the country. But, um, yeah. So, it's kind of this combination of idealism that would allow that person to reject sort of social conventions and... Uh, Well, idealism idealism meaning... This seems like this would be the path for me to get my right. needs met, to find enlightenment, to find love. This is the way. So I'm going to shut, I'm going to let go of other things and give my full attention to this. Right. Which, you know, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to join a cult anyway, but I think if I was considering it, I'd be like, wow, everyone's going to think I'm a weirdo. Whereas someone like this would be like, well, I don't care what they think necessarily because this is correct this is oh, you know yeah. i'm open to rejecting what you see as social norms and i don't know i think i would be too wrapped up in social norms and yeah not deviate too much but um i find it interesting too i mean you're probably going to hit on this but i find it really interesting about the idea of especially in so many of these coercive destructive cults or destructive movements with the charismatic leaders that you sh- you shut off your past life. You know, so I could get it if somebody came from a completely damaged, you know, um, mm-hmm. abusive, invalidating life. Right. But that's not the whole demographic you're talking no, about. No, not at These all. These are people that are then, you know, you know, people on, you can go to these um, deprogramming forums and people talk about losing a family member and they're like, no, we, our family was great. We were doing great. Now she won't, right. you know, she refused to have any contact with yep. us because so-and-so told her not to. Right. I, I can't imagine not doing that. I can be imagine, imagine being pissed off at somebody in my family, but I'm not going right. to you know, completely cut off. Right. Exactly. Contact. Yeah. So it, I guess the, the perfect recipe for it is sort of that idealism and then maybe that emotional upheaval or, you know, time in their life where they're experiencing some sort of pain or transition. Right. Um, 
and you know, cults often say they're going to provide solutions to whatever that right. problem is. And like the guy life. said to me, there are thousands of meditations. I have the one true meditation. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, let me talk a little bit about recruitment, um, and that follows up with what you just said. There's always an invitation to some non-threatening event. So, wow. hey, people come to meditation at my yeah, house my and house. just meditate. meditate. Um, so, it, I mean, that's classic. It could be just, you know, going to a party, um, going to listen to music, go to a poetry reading, um, something very non-threatening that is just like, hey, come meet my friends. Um, that is just, and has this normal vibe to it. It doesn't feel um, weird or shady from the beginning. Yeah. So, um, and then is typically where the love bombing will come in, even before you're asked to join or, you know, know what you're going to get out of it. The love bombing will start either at that event or at the next event. I wonder if I would fall for that. Part of me thinks I could, and the other part yeah. of me oh, thinks I could have maybe at that time. <laughs> right. But the other part was like, mm, this feels weird. I don't know. I wonder if it's done, you know, genuine enough, and um, it depends where you're at, what your yeah. needs are at that time. And, you know? you know, the followers, the other followers that are doing the love bombing may not be aware that they're doing it either, right? I mean, they oh, could be true, like, this true. Is, this is, you know... We, that we're bringing somebody else in and right. add to our beautiful collective, like the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then at some point, the next step is sort of where they dangle the prize in front of the person. Um, so this is the promise of getting something special out of being part of the group. Um, you know, if you join, if you then choose to conform choose, I'm going to say in air quotes, to conform, um, whatever needs you're trying to get met will be met by us and or our leader, our group, or however it is for that specific one. Um, And then they don't just dangle the prize and specifically ask you, but they wait for you to agree. Like it's almost a verbal agreement to where now you feel like, okay, I said yes, I have to, I'm accountable now. I've made a commitment. A commitment, absolutely. Yeah. So um, that's a very deliberate step usually in that somehow there is this agreement made. Um, and then when things start to get, you know, when when the person they're recruiting or has now agreed, yet another something is making them feel uncomfortable whether it's they're asking them for money now asking them for more devotion or just asking for more than what was kind of asked for up front um that's when some of the threats can come in and doesn't necessarily have to be threats of harm or anything like that but again sort of threats of well then you're not going to get this prize this Thing so that it's dangling you're looking a carrot. For. Yeah, it's dangling yeah. throughout. Um, but it's definitely, you know, reminding them of, oh, well, if you don't do that, then you're not going to get what you wanted out of this. Which makes it, the person then feel like, well, yeah, I did agree. That is what I wanted. So why am I not doing that? And it starts the manipulation. 
Um, and then just implementing of other guilt tactics really mm-hmm. is how to keep the person um, invested and involved throughout. But um, so that's a little bit about recruitment. Af- after the person has joined a cult, there's a couple things that go on. Um, and I want to talk about conformity because at some point, yes, they do conform to the cult leader's dictums on how to think, on how to live, and especially when it's these total changes in lifestyles. Um, so you remember our friend Dr. Phil Zimbardo, right? Oh, yeah. Stanford Prison Study. Fame. So he has a wonderful quote where he says, as long as there are three or more people who agree that reality is not the way you see it, in many cases you will give into the world in their way. And that has been proven in study after study after study. They've done it on candid camera with the elevator. Yes. They've done it. So the most yeah. famous group of those um, studies are the ASH conformity studies. I don't remember those. So if you, if you guys want to look it up, A-S-C-H, um, there's some YouTube videos on them, and I think they were primarily in the 70s. Um, but what they would do is bring in a participant, an unknowing participant, and they would come in, and that's the subject being studied, but then there would be three or four other people in this group who were Confederates, who were pretending to also be study subjects, And it would be a bunch of different tasks. It could be like, okay, here's three lines, you know, of different lengths. And tell me which one of those, A, B, or C, matches the length of this line over here. Okay, that one. And so it's clearly B, but all the other people says A, and the person will overwhelmingly conform to what the group is saying even though it is so obvious in front of them in black and white that that is not the right answer. Um, So study after study, I mean, just different kinds they've done with different um, lab experiments. And was that, okay, who was it that did the electric shock Right. Well, that was more about authority. That was authority, but could feed into here. Sure, I I think. And listening to those tapes, I remember watching those in grad school. I'm like, wow, this is really creepy. Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, the Ash conformity studies, but really, it's being pressured from the group to go against what your belief is. Um, or in those lab studies, you know, what the wrong answer was or going against what the correct answer was. Um, but this just feeds into kind of the bigger concept of conformity and when sort of the group mentality and addressing or adapting to their belief system. So fascinating stuff. Wow. All human behavior stuff. Um, and then psychologists who have studied cults talk about, you know, after this conformity phase, there's then sort of this process of snapping or a sudden shift in personality, which is what you were talking about, or where the family and friends just find it difficult then to relate to this person. Wow. And the separation starts to begin of just the belief system being so starkly different and them being made to believe that what they knew of their former life is no longer a reality or relevant to now what they're trying to achieve. So, um, which just, that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. mm -hmm. I think if you haven't, I, I have not experienced that. So I'm really 
challenged by the idea of being in that position of an individual that's gone past that snap. And right. Like, nope, they don't get it. Nobody else gets it. Just this small group of us get it. Right. Yeah. It, it is so hard to wrap your mind around that. I think this all sounds totally crazy still. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're lo- the loved ones describe them as strangers now. I mean, just complete strangers. So, um, but that's, you know, I, I thought it was interesting and in just researching this of, well, the, I don't know what I came to the table with, but. Yeah, but the big thing that you showed that we came away with is that there is no, that's, yes, there are some uh, types, mm-hmm. but it's not right. what you think. It's no. not that the person is stupid. It's not a stupid person at right. all. Right, not totally it's gullible. Not, or... No, it's somebody who at the right critical juncture in their life. Yeah. Seeking something, right, and coming from something that was either invalidating or was perceived to be invalidating, or just didn't meet where they were. That that's what propels them into this. Well, it, it and I know it. it they are more victim than anything, but it really reminds me of looking at criminal behavior because, you know, we all kind of have these ideas of what criminals are and how they act when a lot of it can be just a perfect storm of sort of factors and circumstances where that choice then ends up getting made. That choice, of course, being, you know, offending behavior. But in this sense, sort of the same thing. The stars are all aligned and just... (laughs) That sounded very uh, culty. Um, the stars are aligned. There's just right the right factors going on at the right time yeah. when this is introduced, and it makes them more susceptible. And, you know, we only scraped the surface here. I mean, not only did we barely go into any of the, I mean, we only gave three examples of the cults in Southern California when there are some really fascinating, really fascinating ones. There's one that actually had a, a chain of restaurants here for a while that was like, you know, all health food, health, health food, rec- mm-hmm. um, a health food restaurants. And his name was uh, Father Yod, uh, and it was called the Source Family, and it was a free right. love cult. Um, there was the Sindianese Liberation Army started right. in California as well, which actually started out with great, you know, Symbionese meant symbiote, symbiosis. They wanted all the races mm-hmm. to come together, but then it turned into a terrorist cult because right. of, you know, they they diverged in their purpose. Right. So it, it's funny you mentioned the restaurant thing because in some of the research I came across, they actually were talking about the founders of Cafe Gratitude. I read that too. Yes, and how they strongly encourage but don't require them to watch certain videos is right. that what it well, was and it'll be interesting to see what kind of pushback we get when yeah. this post but that's another I mean cuz that's such a okay, you know what, LA that's thing story. yeah because it's landmark right. so there's some there's a movement and I'm going to I don't I only know a little bit about it but there was I think the original movement was called the Forum okay and then landmark was an offshoot of the Forum and they are and those were based on principles of Est, which was a big movement in the mm, 70s. Okay. Now, what's fascinating about Landmark is that, you know, look, at at its core are some really good things that very much fall in line with dialectical behavior therapy. Okay. And sort of looking at yourself through a clear lens. However, 
they are really coercive in making you spend money on additional courses and going to this level and buy this material. And right. that, that part was, I mean, I, that was, I was at a, I was filming a commercial and half the people on the commercial had just done landmark and they were all just buzzing <laughs> with like this crazy, like, energy. I mean, energy. And they were like, every time you said something, they go, well, that's a story. That's a story you're telling about. I mean, and now I laugh wow. because it's right. 30 right. years later, I'm going, okay, you know, as a narrative therapist, when I'm doing individual therapy, that might be the same context I use for framing a sure. issue for a client, but without this sort of zealot fervor in my eyes. Right. It was right. very disturbing. Ooh. But yeah, Cafe Gratitude. I mean, that's, <laughs> look, the food is great. Well, great, and I mean, but, you just think the, of like crunchy vanilla, crunchy granola, California, again, coming back to like, what is the draw right. and this sort of hippie vibe. And I'm going to leave your menu right here. <laughs> Today's special is aptitude. So I hope you'll <laughs> consider aptitude. That, and you not, better finish the bottom of that bowl so you can read what it says exactly. at the bottom. And I am not exaggerating. That's like every single weight person I've had at a Cafe Gratitude. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to leave this with you for a while, and I'll be right back. Why did we not go there for lunch this week <laughs> to prep for this? You know there's one in the Arts District now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I just want another one in Larchmont. Let's go. <laughs> so uh, to, to wrap things up, I was going to say that um, one that's very um, – very interesting in how it relates to LA and here we are LA confident, not so confidential is, um, the children of God are also known as the family. And that was a, a real, it was a, a Christian cult, um, that started off, uh, wow. Like <laughs> a long time ago. I mean, this is like had been going on for 40 or 50 years. Wow, yeah. Actually started off in the twenties. Um, uh, but had come to L.A. in 1968, and I can't remember who the initial um, leader was, but David Berg it was the most well-known. Um, and there was it, was, very, it was very much a polyamorous mm-hmm. um, Christian cult, and they were the ones, you know, and to, in order to entice uh, newcomers, they used what was called flirty fishing. Like fishermen, you you right. will be like Christ said, you will be be fishers of men. Is that they would send their women out to flirt with guys and say, "Hey, you can come back and have all the sex you want." And then, unfortunately, it started getting into um, uh, sex with you know family members, and right. it was the and a lot of people Incestual. were realizing way we're 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 being encouraged to have sex with minors and people left in droves, thankfully. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And interestingly, right. the ones who got out were some very well-known celebrities whose families got them out. Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, his right, His parents right. were part of that and were like, no, we're out of here. Right. Rose McGowan. Rose oh, McGowan's okay. family were like, nope, we're out of here. Um, and both of them, I mean, Rose McGowan says that she never had the experience of being abused, but she knew that it was, I mean, her parents knew that it was time to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Close, very famous award-winning actress, was um, part of the of a cult um, across the U.S. called Moral Rearmament, which made its money by, do you have any idea? I have no clue. Up, up with people, 
Remember that? No. Were you too, you're too young? <laughs> when I was growing up, that was a huge auditorium show that traveled around the world. And it was just all these, it was like 75 fresh-faced kids singing about, you know, America and morality wow. and making dance numbers. And they were all just adorable. And it was part of a cult. Oh, wow. That and reminds she, me of this she one. She talks about getting out of it and realizing, she realized early, like, oh, this is weird. Right. And she even credits being a better actor because she had to act like she believed all the hooey that they were selling. Oh, my gosh. When I was in a drill team, there was this group that would perform called Sunshine Generation. Oh, wow. And that totally reminds me of that. like the Brady's Sunshine Day. Um, who, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, when she came to L.A., I think she came from San Diego, mm-hmm. she was rooming with a couple that were, I don't want to be, they were breathitarians. <laughs> breathitarians? They believe, and though there are people that actually still believe in this philosophy that actually you can train your body to need nothing but air. Oh. And that if you're living a really pure life and you've like you know you've moved to that level, that you can actually you know no eat, food, no, no water, food, no water. All you need is to get all your nutrients is air. And it wasn't until she um, she had started dating um, an actor who was to become her husband, uh, Peter Horton, mm-hmm. Peter Horton from Thirty Something. Mm-hmm. And they were researching doing a project on cults, and apparently she was looking at this, reading about it, and realized, oh my gosh, I've been involved in a cult. Was she still living with those people? I, or I still think she had left of... already. Oh, she okay. Was like, I kind of realized, wow. oh my gosh, this is what's been going on for me. Um, and of course, the Arquettes. The Arquettes mm-hmm. not really so much a, a cult, but they were part of a commune that got very cult-like, and all the kids were abused by the parents pretty badly, but yeah. they were able to move away. That was um, Skyman Subud, which was sort of an Eastern philosophy mm-hmm. that had moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, we had, we didn't really talk about it because it's been talked about so much, but right. Scientology is huge sure. in Los Angeles. Sure. Um, not as huge as it would um, like to be considered, but um, right. Leah Remini has spoken out publicly about her experience. I think it's fascinating and good for her. Absolutely. And I absolutely wish her the best. Um, and Jason Begay, who was another, you know, uh, he may not be a household name, but he's a really talented working actor that's been around for 35 years. And he had given his life to that movement. Right. And he just realized one day, no, this is not, this is not real. Well, and I admire... Leah Remini and people who come out and are able to be very sure and solid about what they now believe and, you know, and her taking kind of like the fight along with it because so many people like you were describing, you know, some of the people you knew that have these decades ripped away from them. How do you come to terms with that? you know, some people are just like, well, you know, no, I don't regret it. And it's really hard to look at it for what it is right. when you were a piece of that for so long. That would be fascinating to talk to one of these people about. There's, there's, mm-hmm. There are a couple of people I'm going to approach through social media that I hope will consider talking to us because it's that very idea. I mean, I, so much of the work that I do in my private practice is about identity development. Right. And the idea of having 
just this enormous chunk taken away from you. You know, you talk about the snap in, you were using right. the term snap right. in, and then the idea of snapping out. Yes. And how unbelievably painful that must be. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. But fascinating stuff. Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for um, tuning in this week. We really appreciate it. Please let us know um, what else you want to hear about. You know how to reach us. Um, we're very excited about some upcoming shows, but if you have ideas and specific things you want us to focus on, we'd love to hear your ideas. Absolutely. Keep them, keep them coming. And we love even, you know, stuff like this that, you know, maybe we're not totally diving into all the time is so fun to research and then kind of give you our two cents about it and how it overlaps with our world. So, um, yeah, we look forward to hearing your suggestions and otherwise we'll keep doing some research and put together some good content for you. And thank you for bearing with us in, um, some of these lulls. So we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye folks. Take care.